2 Corinthians 5 is our text this morning. So let me begin with this question. Why is our nation doing what it's doing? Why is our nation deciding what it's deciding? And let me just say this. It's an age-old problem, beloved. Look on the screen there. It's Psalm 2. Segue into our text. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In other words, why do they noisily assemble? What is this conspiracy of humanity against its creator? Why do the nations rage? Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Which means, to refuse to live within God's prescribed ways. We don't want his restraint on us. Foolishly thinking that they're free. God's response is the only place in the Bible where it says God laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Notice God is not pacing the floor. He's not wringing his hands, saying, what are my creatures doing, conspiring against me? He's not pacing the golden streets, beloved. He doesn't even get up off his throne. You see that? He who sits in the heavens laughs. This is a laugh of mockery. Then he will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That has happened. Ask of me, and I will make the nation your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That has happened. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That has happened, that is happening, and that will ultimately happen when he comes the second time. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Present warning for the ages. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all. Who take refuge. In him. In who? In this son. In this son. The only son. The only refuge. Now, for a more distinct statement about that refuge, 
Take your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, stand, and I'll begin reading in verse 11. This is, is every other portion we've read this morning, the Word of God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This ends the reading of God's word. This passage is one of the most distinctive, one of the most unique statements in all the New Testament about the nature of God's gospel and the transforming power of salvation. This is Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth, who, of course, is made up of professing believers. It's the church, the church in Corinth. So as you read the text, did it not sound as though Paul was preaching the gospel for the very first time? Doesn't it sound like that? Yeah? He could have been preaching this to some pagan group in the market square of any town or village throughout the Roman Empire. This message. So this then, beloved, serves as a wonderful reminder for all of us who sit here in Christ, or professing to be in Christ at least, as a reminder that regardless of how many years of maturity one has behind him or her, We never grow past the glory of the gospel. Don't ever grow past or beyond or think that you've grown past the glory of the gospel. As redeemed people, we must be brought back regularly to the foundations of the gospel. Because if you lose sight of the glory of the gospel, you will lose sight of the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you lose sight of the glory of Jesus Christ you will inevitably lose sight of the Christian life and your worldview will change. 
And you'll think that it's loving to acknowledge and accept that a man can be married to a man. He appeals to them in chapter 6, verse 1. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in, in vain. If you ever think, beloved, if you ever begin to think that the Christian life is some small thing, you know, hanging your head as though you're one of the world's simpletons, if you're ever tempted to think like that, if you're ever tempted to have second thoughts about what's true and what is the lie, because that temptation will come if it hasn't already. It's evidence that you have lost sight of the greatest privilege of all. And that is the grace of God in Jesus Christ who came and laid down his life as an offering, as a sacrifice, as a substitute for you. We come here and we sit under the word week in and week out. You know, this is a means of grace. Sitting under the word of God is a means of God's grace. God's word creates faith. Faith creates good works. Biblical faith produces the fruit of good works. So this is no no small thing in what we do here week in and week out, beloved. Amen? No small thing at all. So to keep coming, we keep coming to keep trusting in Jesus Christ. We keep coming to keep receiving the overflow of living water, to keep coming and receiving the flood of saving grace that pours over our lives as His Word is proclaimed, preached for His glory, for your good. From Genesis to Revelation, beloved, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't think the gospel begins in Matthew. It begins in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And it unfolds itself throughout redemptive history all the way through the pages of Holy Scripture. The Gospel. You know, James Packer, he has said that, and I quote, one of the most urgent tasks facing the evangelical church today is a recovery of the Gospel. A recovery of the Gospel. It's a sorry state of affairs, beloved, when the most urgent task facing the church is recovery of the Gospel. It's a pitiful state. The gospel addresses and answers the greatest and most fundamental problem of all, and that is the problem of sin. That is, beloved, there's a problem. It's called our transgressions. And another problem, God's righteousness. That's a problem for those who have sins and transgressions against the one who's righteous. That's a problem. The one fundamental problem is the absence of that required righteousness. The other fundamental problem is the presence of sins and transgressions of that one who is righteous, the only one who's righteous. That's the problem. It's a fundamental problem. Man's root problem is not health. As important as that is. Pain's a problem. that's That's not man's primary problem. 
Man's core problem is not poverty, it's not inequality, it's not wealth distribution, it's not injustice, it's not the political schema. That's not man's foundational problem. Man's fundamental problem is not the environment, it's not global warming. It's not mob rule that foolishly burns down one's own neighborhood. It's not ISIS. It's not the Supreme Court. That is not man's fundamental problem. Don't make the mistake of thinking that it is. One fundamental problem of man, which we think oftentimes it is, is unhappiness. It's not unhappiness. There's a much deeper rooted problem than unhappiness. All those, beloved, are signs of a world that's out of joint because of sin and rebellion against their creator. And there's only one creator. There's one God. One way to him. This is the problem. Falling short of God's glory is the fundamental problem. Missing the mark is the inherent dilemma of man. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's our problem. It's always been man's problem. That's the original crisis. The lack of righteousness and the fact that we have no recuperative ability in and of ourselves to get ourselves right before the one who's righteous. Zero ability. Impotent. Now, the Apostle Paul here sometimes when defining this very fundamental problem, employs the language of law courts. And our need for that forensic declaration of no blame, okay, i.e. justification. To be declared free from no blame. He uses that language when defining this fundamental problem. Sometimes we read temple language. You come to the temple because you are unclean. God must be propitiated, which means God's wrath must be satisfied. Because he's perfectly holy. Atonement is required. Elsewhere, Paul uses the language of the marketplace. We're debtors. The debt needs to be paid. There's a redemption price that must be met. But in this text, the choice of metaphor is taken from the language of society and human relationships. The fundamental problem revealed here is that we need reconciliation. That's a very, very relatable word, a big relatable word in our day. It's the cry among nations at war. It's the cry within families where dysfunction and alienation exist. You know, suffering the ravages of divorce, broken family, Familial relationships, broken, strained. Men and women, the world over, find themselves feeling incredibly, painfully alienated by those they love or at one time loved. The most destructive form of alienation is the mother of all alienations, beloved. And that is the alienation of men and women who by nature, you just have to be born out of your mother, by nature are alienated from their creator because he's holy. And we're sinful. So Paul's word to the Corinthian church is that the world 
is alienated from God. And God, this same God, has brought in Jesus Christ a message of glorious, grace-filled reconciliation. And that word, reconciliation, has its root in the idea of making an exchange. Keep that in mind. Exchange. Great exchange. Key words of the day. Great exchange. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message about a great exchange, a glorious, wonderful exchange. And this is why it's such an incredible blessing to be a Christian. To be a Christian, to receive the grace of God in a life-giving way. Not to receive the grace of God in vain, but in a life-giving way that manifests itself with fruit of life. Spiritual life that bears fruit. That there's life there. So what I want to do in our time is to draw from these verses... Why this exchange is so glorious. And why it is absolutely necessary to be right with God. Notice what Paul says about the need for reconciliation. That is, there's an absolute requirement here for this glorious exchange. And he explains it with not merely technical academic terms but he explains it with clarity, simplicity, and this beloved, passion. True expository preaching must be preached with passion. Not made up, stirred up passion. But a resolute, deep down belief and trust in the power of the word. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore to you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, Paul has been given, beloved, this great privilege from Christ. He's been given such dignity as an apostle, as ambassadors, he says. Look, we're ambassadors. We beg you, we beseech you, we appeal to you, we implore to you, be reconciled to God. That's his appeal, his passionate appeal. So with great emotion here, he declares the fundamental reality of his Christian service. He's an ambassador with a message of reconciliation. That he might appeal to anyone who has not been reconciled to God. Notice verse 13. We see Paul's passion as regards this Reconciliation. Notice, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Right? To be beside yourself is to be seen as being out of your mind. Roses are red, violets are blue, I'm a schizophrenic, and so am I. (laughs) To be beside yourself. (laughs) See if you are awake. Some of you are sleeping back there. Wake up. People have been saying, Paul's lost it. He's beside himself. He's lost his bearings. He's lost his way. You remember what Festus said in Acts 26? Paul's preaching to him. He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Your great learning is driving you mad. You're a nutcase. And all your passion just adds to the fact that you're a nutcase. But this was his passionate intensity for sinners to be reconciled to God. It was interpreted as insanity. 
This incomparable scholar, scholar of scholars, beloved, was prepared to be thought of as a madman. Prepared to be thought of as being beside himself. So that he might appeal to men and appeal to women with regard to their deepest core need. That they might be reconciled to God. Because they're alienated. And this, beloved, is a sign of how much one cares about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, to always be willing and always be prepared for your reputation to be tainted. To be maligned. To be accused of being beside yourself. To be accused of being a nutcase. Paul was prepared to be thought of as being out of his mind. So long as I can just win some to Christ. The great John Calvin gives some pastoral advice in regards to this text. He said, and I quote, This passage deserves not just passing notice, but constant meditation. For unless we are as resolute as Paul is here, the smallest cause of offense will again and again distract us from our duty. End quote. Such as, the world and many professing Christians say, you're unloving, you're a bigot, if you don't think a man could be man to, married to another man within a church. You're a bigot, you're a hater. No, I'm not a hater. As a matter of fact, I love them so much, I want them to know the truth. They, not unlike myself at one time, are alienated from God. And I have the message of reconciliation because it's the Lord's message of reconciliation. That's how much I love them. That's how much I love you, accuser. You know, our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, when they see this kind of passion with regard to the gospel, eventually they're going to say to you, hey, look, man, look, I'm okay with God. I'm okay. I have no beef with God. I'm not alienated with God. You know what? I'm a spiritual person. You ever heard that? You know, I traveled for a year with a friend of mine who, who is a, he's like a rock and roll legend. And I traveled with him because he came to faith and he, he asked if I'd be his actual personal pastor for a year. The pay was really good, so I said, sure. <laughs> and I had the, the opportunity to, to take leave of absence from where I was. And we were on the road with like camera crews and film crews and they were making a movie. And I, we would have late dinners, like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning. And that was kind of the clock of things. And you do the show and you're up late and you eat dinner and you go to bed and you don't get up till noon and then the whole day starts again. So I was sitting with this gal who was on a movie crew and she, had the, she knew I was a Christian. So I think she wanted to appear to be spiritual. She had this rock around her neck and we're at dinner at this Korean joint and cooking our food on this rock hot rock, and she starts chanting to this rock around her neck, and I was sitting next to her, I go, what are you, I forgot her name, but I said, what are you doing? She goes, I'm a spiritual person, I'm chanting, I said, what do you mean you're spiritual? She said, well, you know, I have a relationship with, with God, and I said, with all due respect, honey, if that's how you get to him, you don't, so, you know, I gave her the gospel, and the rest of the time on the road was very tense, with that individual because what she communicated about a way to God was not his way of reconciliation he's the God of reconciliation we don't decide what reconciles us to God he does 
I was very kind and very loving, don't get me wrong. I didn't speak to her like I preach from here, that's different. But it's the same truth. I'm spiritual, they're going to tell you. So Paul gives a litmus test, and this was the litmus test that I gave to her. Paul says, here's the litmus test to whether one is alienated from God or not, and that is this. What do you think about Jesus Christ? Verse 16. From now, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Question. Do you simply view Jesus of the flesh? That is, he was a great teacher. That is, he was the greatest man that's ever lived. He's the greatest influence that's ever walked this planet. He is the greatest example to follow. If that's what you believe about Jesus, and that's all you believe about Jesus, you're not reconciled to God. He's one of many ways you're not reconciled to God. He said he is the way, that he is the truth and he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Your beef's with him. Or do you see Jesus in spirit, in the spirit? That is, from God's perspective, as God's only son, as the only savior, as the resurrected and ascended king of kings and lord of lords, before whom every knee will eventually bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of his father. Do you believe that? Do you trust that with all your heart? Then you have been reconciled to God. If not, you're alienated from God's love for his son and you're alienated from the father's commitment to his son because let me tell you this. No one, again, no one is loved by God salvifically outside of true faith and trust in his son alone. That's how much he loves his son. The fact that you've been saved by grace through faith is because he loves his son. And he gave his son for sinners, and in turn, he gets all these redeemed sinners as a gift. His bride. The church is his bride. Every human being, regardless of what they say, knows deep down in their heart that one day, They will stand before this God and give an account for their lives. They know that deep down. And yet they spend a good portion of their life suppressing that fundamental fact. You with me? It's in Christ alone that anyone is saved from God's awful, righteous judgment. He bore the wrath. You know, those who claim atheism... All they're doing is suppressing that fact. They know they're going to stand before God. Agnostics, atheists. The late uh, English novelist, poet, poet and critic, uh, Sir Kingsley Amos. He was a professed atheist. He died in 1995. Uh, but he was once caught in an unguarded moment. And he was asked, is it true, Sir Kingsley, that you do not believe in God? To which he answered, yes, it is true, but it's more than that, you see. I hate him. Every atheist 
They don't truly not believe in God. They hate him. Whether you admit it or not, before Christ, you hated him. You're going to subject yourself to this unseen God. Not unless he invades your life and transforms your heart. See, Sir Kingsley Amos confessed to hate the God whose very existence he denied. Why? Like every other professed atheist or agnostic, they know that one day they will stand before him and give an account for their lives. You know who the judge is on that day? You know, if if you foolishly think, Jesus doesn't judge. Jesus is the judge. Listen to what he said. John 5. The Father has given him, the Son of Man, me, Jesus, the Messiah, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He's the promised one. The one that the Old Testament promised would come. The Messiah, the one and only Son of God. He is. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Beloved, politics will not resolve the issues that demand justice on that great and awesome day. Supreme Court justices will have no power to recede themselves or excuse a nation from that day. No power. problem spiritual it's not political it's not governmental the problem spiritual the cause of perversions beloved and inversions of our society that's what homosexuality is it's not just a perversion it's not just a crookedness it's an inversion it's 180 degrees out from what's natural the fact is that the creature is at enmity with his or her creator and therefore alienated from this one true God. Now, another problem today is that the visible church, the professing church, has lost its effect as the conscience on culture. Mostly because the majority of those who profess to be a church are apostate. You go to most church buildings... Throughout the fruited plain, you go in and you sit down and you'll realize they don't preach the gospel from here because they don't believe the gospel from here. They don't believe it, so they don't preach it. It's apostate. It's reminiscent of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to the church of Sardis. Listen to this, Revelation 3. I know your works... You have a reputation of being alive, but you are what? You're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. You get that? What you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Professing Christians. Spooky. Spooky stuff. Again, Paul's words, chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in what? In vain. Paul's passionate plea. 
for man's present fallen relationship with God to be exchanged. Here it is. Here it comes. That's the wonder of the gospel. This is the only hope for mankind, let alone this nation. It's the only hope. Verse 18. All this, all this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, look at this, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You know, many, beloved, will believe in a God who doesn't count trespasses and he just simply forgives sins. Who wouldn't want to believe in a God like that? Right? But that's exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying. Don't miss this. God does count men's trespasses. The glory of God's gospel is not that he doesn't count trespasses and just freely, flippantly forgives. He can't do that because he's just. The glory of the gospel is that he doesn't count trespasses against them. Them who? Only those who are in Christ by faith. So, okay, since he counts trespasses, to whom then does he count men's trespasses? Answer, verse 21. Here's the great exchange. For our sake, that is believer's sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the problem of sin's presence and the problem of sin's power and the lack of righteousness are remedied in one way. Right here. The great exchange. This is the glorious change. Glorious exchange. The glory of the gospel. He exchanged my sin, right? On the cross. My sin was placed upon him and I get his righteousness in place of my sin. Is that grace? Can you work for that? No. No. Grace means unmerited favor. Those who are brought to faith to believe and trust upon this Lord and this sovereign Savior will come to realize on that day, that is the day they come to believe, that their sin was placed upon Jesus and his righteousness was placed upon them. That's the great exchange. That's the glorious good news. And you know what, friends? That truth began to work itself out ever since the first man, Adam, sinned. You remember that? Attempting to hide from and defend themselves from God's holiness, Adam and Eve run and hide from God, and they attempt to cover their own guilt. But those fig leaves were burned up as the fiery eyes of Almighty God could see right through them. And God, rather than slaying them for their sin, which they rightly deserved, instead slaughters an animal in order to cover their guilt and shame. In exchange. You see this? In exchange. Another foreshadowing of the great exchange is seen in Abraham on Mount Moriah. Dagger in hand, ready to slay his one and only son, Isaac. His promised son. 
They're on their way in Genesis 22, and Isaac says, Behold, Father, I, I see the fire, I see the kindling, and I see the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering. And my son, so the scripture says they went, both of them, together. And then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Lord. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him, to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted up his eyes. And he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. There God provided a substitute for Abraham's son. It wasn't a lamb. It was a ram. Abraham said God will provide the lamb for himself. So I wonder, what was in the mind of Abraham as regards the ultimate purpose of God in redemption, saying as he did, God will provide for himself the lamb. Centuries later, there was John the Baptist, the voice crying in the wilderness. There he was, and when he saw Jesus coming toward him, the scripture says, John cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb. The Lamb. You see, God the Father did not spare His Son. He spared Abraham's son. He did not spare His only Son, but He gave Him up for us. Substitute. Notice here who takes the initiative. It's God who takes the initiative. While we were yet sinners, the the scripture says, Christ died for us. Look at verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world. Friends, it's not that we reconcile ourselves. God does the reconciling. He's doing it as we speak. He reconciles himself to us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. All of scripture drives us to the ultimate great exchange, Jesus Christ. The whole gospel, the entirety of the gospel, points us forward to or back to the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Verse 21, for our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is his son, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. The initiative is God's. It's John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16. Let's say it together, shall we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have. What kind of life? Yeah. God so loves that he gave. His son. It's his initiative. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, having never sinned. And then he laid down on the cross to bear the punishment as though he committed every sin of every sinner, having never sinned. It's quite an exchange, isn't it? A majority of those who profess to be Christian can't preach that because they don't know that. 
They don't know that. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the message of salvation, beloved. Amen? This is good news because we're dead in trespasses and sins. Utterly incapable of providing any remedy whatsoever. We're dead. We're not merely lost, beloved. Sin isn't a sickness. We're not lost. We're we're not just sick. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 tells us that, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, amen? But God wrought life within us. So the good news of the gospel is stepped in. The initiative is his. The determination is all God's concluded, done in Christ. It is finished. So not only is God just, he is what? Thank you, the justifier. God is just and the justifier. He provides the righteous one. So the gospel then brings about a fundamental change. Fundamental change has taken place in your life, and that is you've been released from all guilt. Did you know that? You know what's going to happen when you stand before the Lord? This is all that can happen. All he can say is, not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. My son bore your guilt. My son bore your shame. Anyone in Christ, everyone in Christ, not guilty. Horatio Spafford, when his wife and four daughters left Chicago in 1873, went to New York. I think they left from the port of New York or Jersey, one or the other, uh, for Europe. Sailed to England. And their ship went down in the mid-Atlantic. There was a crash with a freight liner there or something. And his four daughters drowned. His wife, when she got to England, sent a telegram to her husband. And it said this, saved alone. And he made his journey across to be with his wife. And when they came to that place, he penned down these glorious words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's one of my favorite hymns. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. You will stand before God, well with your soul, and hear, not guilty. I never realized the depth and reality of those words until I was in Christ. I grew up in an Orthodox Presbyterian church with very sound doctrine. I don't know how many times I sung that song. It is well, it is well with my soul. And it, ain't want, it wasn't right with my soul. I wasn't in Christ. I sang that song with Christless eyes. I looked at those words with Christless eyes. But now I see. For now I am in Christ. The gospel. And not just that. Notice verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, you're not just in Christ. You are now a new creature. New creation, new creature. Literally, new creature. You remember that staggering feeling when you came to faith? Many of you do. The staggering feeling of like, man, it's all new. All this guilt is gone. 
I'm free, right? You remember that day? That weight lifted, eyes opened. I get it. I see it. I once truly was blind, but now I see. That's amazing grace. A new creature. You know what Paul says here? This is something of the new heavens and in the new earth. Something future that has already begun to dawn. You're a new creature. You are really a new creature if you're in Christ. Now notice this all works itself out. How it works itself out. Quickly, we're wrapping up here. Verse 9. Back to verse 9. We didn't read it, but notice. Whether we, are, uh, whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to what? To please him. Verse 14. The love of Christ now controls us, Paul says, because we have concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. We no longer live for ourselves. I was the most, I'm still kind of selfish. Before I was saved, man, the most selfish person on the planet. And God is breaking that away because I'm a new creature. It's his life wrought in me. It's his life birthed in me. But now, but for him, verse 15, who for their sake died and was raised, from now on, therefore, you see, we regard no one according to the flesh. So in the midst of all trials and all complexities, dear Christian, for you today, whether you suffer with physical sickness, physical ailments, mental or emotional distress because of relationships, people you love and people you're worried about, in the midst of all of these things, we live in order to please Christ. And let me assure you of this. Living to please Christ, beloved, shows up in very, very ordinary ways. Don't think that you have to become this macho, super-conquering, radical Christian. Okay? Listen to the words of Michael Hort. I think this comes from his book, Ordinary. Quote, If we're justified by faith in Christ, then we need not be anxious to show how spirit-filled we are by living extraordinary, radical lives. Horton argues that the underlying theology behind, you know, the oft-heard calls to be wild and crazy radical believers, you know, as if Christianity were some extreme sport, is nothing but works righteousness in a new consumerist mode. He, He continues, Jesus compares us to salt. A week in this culture of ours can desalinate us. Desalt you. We need to be resalinized each week by the word of God. Pastors, you're just waiters at God's feast. Look, my job is to prepare the meal and not to spill it between Friday and the Lord's Day. My job is to not spill it in delivering it to you. I hope I don't spill it. It's to preach it, read it, study it, preach it rightly. I don't care how good I am. I just want to be concerned with that I'm right. Because there's one meaning to the text. Amen? Okay. Pastors are just waiters at God's feast, serving Christ's people with a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. They preach, baptize, instruct, rebuke, and comfort. It's a crucial job in the kingdom. And yet, 
It's the members who are shaken out into the world as salt and light in their various callings. That's where our good works go. Now listen to this, moms, dads. A mom and dad changing diapers are loving and serving their nearest neighbor as much as a pastor or missionary. You get that, moms? Whether making shoes or laws, exploring the stars or driving a truck, everyone is given a calling by God to pass out his gifts to others each day. End quote. Ordinary Christian living for the glory of God, to please Christ. Amen? I hope that encourages you. Gee, I'm not radical enough for Jesus. After all, real men love Jesus. You don't need the bumper stickers. Just serve Christ. (laughs) Amen? You don't need bumper stickers. They're okay, don't get me wrong. But you don't need that to to, to, to validate your Christianity. Amen? This is one of the effects of the great exchange right here. Christ's love for us. Verse 14, controls us. And then my view of life is no longer for self. Verse 15, why? Why? Because he hasn't left me to myself. If the Lord left me to myself, I would never have come to faith in Christ by myself. It's not possible. I'd never bend the knee to Christ without him invading my life. He pursued reconciliation, not me. People who run the system out there, beloved, Supreme Court justices, politicians, senators, congressmen, presidents, you name it. They will not bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ if they're left to themselves. Therefore, they will do what they do. Amen? This is the grace shown to you. Instead, they will plot in vain and counsel together against the Lord. And to conclude, really seriously, check this out. We no longer see anyone simply, verse 16, according to the flesh. We see everyone as someone who will stand before God and either enter in to heaven for eternity or hell for eternity. And don't fool yourself into thinking that hell's not for eternity because if you think hell's not for eternity, then you have no reason to believe heaven's for eternity. This is how we see people now, amen? Hopefully, I have to continually pray to remind myself, Lord, when I feel like putting my hands around someone's throat out there in the world, and I'm just being truthful and transparent, (laughs) help me to remember not to see them simply according to the flesh because they're going to stand before you. So then, verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we appeal, we persuade others to be reconciled to God. You're no longer what you once were. You're no longer an Adam. You're a new creature in Christ. You're in Christ. That's the fundamental identity that you have now. In Christ. Amen? We've been delivered. Question. Have you received? Talking to you. Have you received with childlike faith the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you been reconciled to God? That's my question. Perhaps you've heard the gospel dozens of times. 
Is it possible to hear the gospel dozens of times and not come to faith? Yes. Is it possible to hear the gospel a hundred times and not come to faith? Yes. Perhaps is the 101th time that you've heard it. And perhaps in God's grace is the day of your salvation. Perhaps you've just simply appeared to believe and trust the gospel because of mommy and daddy's sake. Or because of the sake of your believing children. Have you been reconciled to God? You know, you may die before this day's over. My wife and I went to a funeral last Saturday of a kid who grew up in front of our house skateboarding, jumping their skateboards with our son. He went on to be a great surfer, surfed all over the world. He knew how to swim. He was a strong swimmer. He was a great surfer. He was an expert spear fisherman. And he drowned. I've never seen so many surfers in one place in all my life. Because his stepdad is a legendary surfer in this town. I'm down there by wind and sea and all these people. But here's a kid, he's 26 years old and had what they call a shallow water blackout. I don't even know what that is, but he drowned in shallow water. Expert surfer, swimmer, spear fisherman. You could be dead before the day's over. Question, have you been reconciled to God? Because immediately you will be brought before the judgment of this God. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. God is appealing to you through me to receive the overflow grace of Almighty God found only in Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. You shall be saved.